Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content, and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm a feminist, but I thought today that I would be interested in a feminist timeshare. <laughs> like, no, I mean, just some of the more onerous responsibilities of feminism could I do that five days a week and share with another feminist who would do it two days a week? Um, or some weeks, could I do it three days a week? Like more like a part-time, like a job share. And then I thought I'd probably do do that actually. <laughs> that is probably true. I have more feminist days some days. Not full-time. Not really. Not, not the actual active bit. Like I like to think I uphold the principles passively. The pr- yeah. But I don't get out of bed every day and go, feminism starts now. Yeah. Do you know what Three, I mean? Three, two, one. Feminism. Oh, yeah, that's what comes after <laughs> Three, two. Well, you don't need oh, to sorry. count when you're, yeah. Three, two, feminism. Three, yes. two, feminism. That is the more, that's the Sophie G. Get one. out ahead of the gate. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I'm a feminist, but yeah. I occasionally wonder if you can burn calories during sex dreams. Oh, yes. Because, like, you know, you can, like, sleep walk. Yes. Sleep talk. Yes. Sleep hump yes occasionally i don't know if you've ever been in a sort of sleepover situation with someone that's a little bit frisky i once had a sex dream about antonio banderas that was so intense that i felt like i'd run a marathon when i woke up wow so well probably yes actually do you know how we could find this out wear your fitbit to bed Uh, and then see because if your heart rate goes up yes i would say yes i do want to say on behalf of feminism because I'm a permanent part-time feminist, as discussed, and I'm on at the moment. It's one of my on days uh, that burning calories should not be the main focus of sex, sex dreams, or almost anything we do. No, no, yeah, for good, yes, yeah. I mean, have an Antonio right. Banderas good time, and if it turns out no calories were burned in yeah. the making of this sex dream, I might have accumulated calories. How? <laughs> I once had a dream, not, not about sex. You cannot accumulate calories. You, you, no. I had a dream about pizza, not a sex dream. Well. I'd hasten to add. Uh, and I, when I ate the pizza, it just tasted like paint. And I think I woke up and I realised I'd been licking the wall by the side of my bed. Oh, okay. Listen, I really wouldn't worry about the calories of Farron Ball. I really... <laughs> 
<laughs> wouldn't worry about that. I or, love how you even, think that's what's on my wall. <laughs> or even a Dulux. Yeah. I think if you swallow in a sex dream, nothing happens. Okay. Oh. Antonio, if you're listening. <laughs> There's a, there was a frisson around this room. There's only like half a dozen people in the room. But when I said the word swallow, there was a frisson, wasn't there? There was a... Oh, Ooh, oh. yeah. I am a feminist, but... I do not believe that all straight men should be allowed to listen to Lizzo because I feel like self-belief is like a drug that should be administered like the COVID vaccine. Like it should be given first to the most vulnerable. (laughs) (laughs) And then at the end, all the straight men can listen to Lizzo. That's a good idea. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Because I'm just like... Yeah, you are so right. Yeah, I don't want people being empowered before, you know, everyone is empowered. I wonder if as an artist you could do that. You could say, like, if it was an iTunes thing, certain accounts can apply. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like that's basically what, like, most of TikTok is. That's true. <laughs> that, yeah. But I can't, I, I mean, I'm slipping into TikTok, but I know it's so, not for me. When, when straight, cis, masculine, normcore men, when they hear Lizzo sing... I do my hair toss, check my nails. Do you think they think, oh, that's for, does that raise their confidence the way it does ours? I don't think <sighs> it does. I think they think that's not for me. I don't, I, yeah, I, I think, imagine I think, most of them go, I do took my, my hair toss, check my nails. Baby, how you doing? Feeling good as hell. I don't think they do like a whole like hair flick, but I think they just do a little, oh, <laughs> just like, do you look think? At their, like, look at their key schools and think, I'm a bad boy. <laughs> Uh, Billy Eilish, maybe. Yeah. I'm a bad guy. Bad. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think Lizzo's powerful enough to raise the self esteem of of any human, but I think they will tune out instinctively. The, mm. the, the norm core, not feminist guys well, initially. Straight cis men who listen to The Guilty Feminist, you're allowed your injection of Lizzo because you're here drinking at the well. Uh, but please <laughs> do stop other men you know yes. getting too much of her because yeah. we need to even the self esteem out. Um, I'm a feminist, but I just don't care about this football thing twice. Once, because I don't care about football. Two, because nothing women do professionally will ever be dissected at this length and have this much emotion attached to it on Twitter. It's a boy thing. I don't care. I agree. One handy P. I don't care. I don't care. I tried to look at it and I was like, because everyone seemed to be talking about so much. It was like, it's, it's, I don't watch Line of Duty. So I thought I'd better find out about this because they're the only two things anyone's talking about. Oh yeah, the the Bent, I don't, I don't either. The Bent Coppers? Yeah, yeah, Line of, yeah. What? I know. It just feels a bit, I don't, uh, it's a lot to get into. So I thought, well, I'll have a look at the football because that's the only thing on Twitter is Line of Duty and the football and people seem to be very worked up. And as far as I can tell, it's just sort of like, they're starting a breakaway league where there's a lot of money and yeah. people are saying, well, you're not respecting the old league. I didn't even know what the old league was, so I didn't care about that. So I was like, what? They're leaving the old European league that I cared so much about and <laughs> knew the name of to set up a new richer league. And they're like basically saying they're putting money before the fans or something. I was like, since when have they not done that? Yeah, it sounds exactly like OG football. Like, yeah, I know in the 90s, guilty. it was all about like five million pounds to transfer a player and stuff, wasn't it? I thought that was the point of football. I thought like, like I, I know there'll be guilty feminist football fans listening being like, no, you don't understand. But I just feel like football's always been quite capitalist. They get paid quite a lot. Quite a lot. They've got Farrow and Ball walls and they could lick it, lick it off daily and reapply and they'd be fine. <laughs> I'm a feminist, but I sometimes think that the word feminist sounds too girly. Mm. Like I'd rather we were called something like equality sharks. (laughs) (laughs) No, because then people don't know it's about 
gender and yeah. we've got to have ge- – but equality – no, I can't even make that joke. I was going to go for a quality sharkettes and I was like, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. A quality sharkettes. A quality sharkettes. You said it. You did it. Quality sharkettes. Yeah. I winced though. You saw me wince. <laughs> I'm a feminist, but there's a young Australian pop star called Troy Savane who was interviewed on a show called The Project in Australia. The Project's on every night. It's like a magazine show where it's like news and culture and, you know, there's presenters behind a desk and they get guests on. I've done The Project when I've been doing comedy. Troy Savane is a young man and he was interviewed about a lyric he wrote when he did a song with Ariana Grande and he wrote a lyric that she sang. And the lyric was, let's do that thing we never do sober. Ooh. And they just, these presenters just probed him on the project and were like, so what's the thing that you never do sober? What is it? What is it? And he was like, ah, I think it's better if you leave it to the imagination. And they were like, but what was it? But what was it? And he was like, well, I mean, I just thought it was really funny that, you know, Ariana Grande sang it because I didn't expect that she was going to. But what was it? But what was it? It's sex, isn't it? It's sex. It's a sex thing. It's a sex thing. I mean, it was so inappropriate and I could not stop laughing. And do you know why? Because my Australianness overtook my feminism it was just in that moment I was like only in Australia would sort of respectable presenters on a prime time nightly this is not some kind of cable show this is absolute prime time network television in America they wouldn't even bring the lyric up here someone might say oh that's my favorite looks very funny is there a story behind it mm-hmm. but if the person said leave it to your imagination if Graham Norton said that they said oh well I'll leave it to your imagination they'd go oh yeah oh, okay. he would just do that yeah. Even Jonathan Ross wouldn't go, yeah, but what's, what does it mean now? What does it mean now? What does it mean now? Tell us. Yeah, yeah but what is I the thing? I think that's amazing. I think, did they make him say it? <laughs> no. They just eventually <laughs> one of them went, but they're all kind of really respectable looking men in suits going, come on, come on, tell us, tell us, tell us. And they just thought it was so funny. And it was, they, they were being playful with it. They weren't yeah, being yeah. harassing. But if it were a woman, I would have been like, oh, if they had Ariana Grande on and said that, I would have been oh, like, yeah, no, that, that doesn't have been, feel good at no, all. No, no, no. But I don't know, there was something about it that was so Australian and playful. But one of the men eventually just went, it's about sex, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's a sex thing. It's a sex thing. I, mean, I love so if funny. they've been briefed not to do that, but just can resist. They're just like, what? I, yeah, sex? Fully <laughs> Is it? It's just so funny. I have to send it to you. I love Australia. I've never been to Australia, so I can't really say that without knowledge of Australia. Oh, but I feel like you would go down very well in Australia. Oh. Yeah. Sydney, would, Sydney and Melbourne would eat you up. They'd love Do you. Do I want to be eaten up? I mean... Yes. Yes. The answer is yes. Why was I pretending? (laughs) You've got to do the Melbourne Comedy Festival. You will smash it. Okay. You'll smash it. I'll go smash and then be eaten. Whoa. That sounded so much worse when I said it. I also do comedy as well as the thing I just said, (laughs) as well as a willingness to smash and be eaten. Live from King's Place in London, The Spontaneity Shop presents The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis-White, guest co-host Sophie Duca, and our very special guest, Emma Dabiri, talking about being a super ally with music from With What Eyes. Hello, 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 and welcome to The Guilty Feminist live stream. It's me, Deborah Francis-White, here alone on a big stage. But I'm not going to be alone for long because I have a wonderful co-pilot. Thank you so much, by the way, before I introduce her, for coming on the chat. I can see people, Cheryl and Amy, saying hello from Welland Garden City. Uh, Somebody that rose saying hello from sunny Ashford, Kent. Is anyone from further away than Kent? 
a lot of people from a place called Woo. Like six. Six people are from Woo. We should tour there when we can. Hello from Alexandra Palace. Hello. If you can't see Deborah on stage, please refresh your page. Yes, that's actually a rule for life. Canada. Canada and Berlin. Hello. You know, Canada was my favorite uh, touring place in many ways last year because we'd not been there before and everyone was so excited to see us. People said people don't come there. Edinburgh, Basel, Berlin, Ireland, Ireland. Now, Ireland, are you, Rachel and Mary from Ireland, have you ever been to the Dublin gigs at the Vicar Street venue? Vicar Street is my favorite venue in the whole world. Those people know how to bring a rock concert to a podcast recording. That's all I'm going to say. Hello from Belfast. We've been to Belfast. We've not been to Cologne. We've not been to Berlin. We have a lot of listeners in Berlin. We should go. So Heather and Sally, who live in Cologne, would you travel to Berlin if we came? People are saying hello from Edinburgh. We've been to Edinburgh quite a few times. We're forced to. We're comedians. It's the law. It's council zoning in August. You just, you're just shipped there. You don't want to go. Um, any other time of year, though, Edinburgh is wonderful. I had the I'm a feminist, but sometimes I wish it was John Ham. Oh, 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 Gavin from Canada. So Gavin from Canada met me after the show. We did a meet, meet and greet in Toronto, and he was wearing a T-shirt that said, I'm a feminist, but some days I wish I were John Ham." If you don't know what this means, because you haven't watched or listened to many Guilty Feminists before, I go on about John Ham a lot. And somebody else wrote in a note to me once, which got passed to me on stage, you're my John Ham. Isn't that nice? Isn't that lovely? And that's my husband there with a hollow laugh. Um, yes, we would, Heather and Sally are saying. So look, at least two people would come from Cologne. So thank you so much for joining us here. And when we are allowed to have this place heaving with unmasked people again, which will be quite soon, I'm hoping, or at least heaving with people, masked or otherwise, we should keep doing this because it's so nice that other people can do it. Then I heard the joke you made at the Vancouver show. I loved it. What joke? Oh, did I joke about you, Gavin? I see. Did I? Did I? So I met you in Toronto, joked about you in Vancouver, not remembering that you're such a fan. You're going to have heard that later. Well, Gavin, it's great that you loved the joke, whatever it was. Can you remind me what the joke was? Was I joking about you and your t-shirt? Maybe I was just saying I'm a feminist, but I would prefer if all men wore that t-shirt. I mean, it's very good for me. Um, all right, while Gavin comes up with that joke, it's time to bring on my incredible co-pilot. And my co-pilot for this evening is the wonderful Sophie Duca. Woo! I wondered where you were, Sophie, because last time I saw you in the green room, so I was doing a bit of padding because I thought, she didn't follow me. There's no way she's ready. Hey, Sophie Duca, come here and take a seat. I wish I could hug and kiss you and more. Me too. Even pre-COVID, I wish that. I mean, yeah. Ah. I'm, uh, I know. Quite soon, quite soon. Are you, yes, about going home with me, my wife loved it. Oh, Ooh. okay. So Gavin there, did I say I wanted to go home with you? Did I? I'll tell you, that was an edgy, reckless joke on my part, Gavin. This is uh, somebody on the feed. Somebody, but, I mean, if you said it on air, then you've got no deniability about it. It's a binding I, contract. I mean, uh, <laughs> I was on tour and I was quite lonely on the American tour. <laughs> I know, I really, really was. On the Australian New Zealand tour, it was like me, Cal Wilson, Grace Petrie, you know, and lots of co-hosts and stuff that I knew. But in America, I was on my own, didn't have a tour manager. I would do meet and greets at the end and sign people's books. And then the other comedian who I'd only just met 
would go. Obviously, they didn't want to hang around for the, an hour and a half while I signed books no. and go for a drink. So they would go. So I was either speaking to like a thousand people or nobody for a That's month. That's really sad. It was. You're it was. like Britney Spears in her song Lucky. That's exactly yeah, she cried, what cried, I was cried, like. Cries in her lonely heart. Yes. Yeah. I am Britney Spears. It's so apparent to me now. I am the Deborah Britney Francis Spears. White. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, nothing. Continue. No, no. Free, free Britney, not but Deborah's fine. I am the Britney Spears of the podcasting world. It's so apparent to me now. That's true. Does Britney have a podcast? Is that allowed? It wouldn't be as good as this one. I don't think it's her strength. Have you seen her Instagram videos? I, They're quite rambly. Oh, I have. I haven't seen her Instagram videos. I, I, I prefer any still Britney. I don't think I can take yeah. the motion picture of what she's become. Oh, poor Britney. But I feel like she will rise again, Britney. Yeah, I think she'd be fabulous when she's older. I want her to like live long and prosper. Yes. I think that she had a bit, obviously, when she was super, you're familiar with Britney, super famous Britney. Mm. Now there's all the conservatorship weirdness. Mm. Mm. But I think that when she's free and old, she's going to be great because she's going to have amazing anecdotes. Oh, I think that's right. I think we're yet to see the autobiography of these years, but I think she's going to come out the other side stronger than ever. I do. That's stronger my- than ever. Is that is that a lyric? That is, it's, she's got a song called Stronger. It's fine. Uh, um, Martin Christina? If I'm completely honest, I don't know Britney as well as you do. I already know that just from looking at your eyes. I, I never thought, I, I actually was team Christina. I liked the Why genie in the bottle. I liked how Christina was a bit dirty, you know, d- dirty. I don't yeah. know what, I'm going to test you at millennial references. Like they always pitted like young women against each other. So it was like mm. Britney and Christina and then like Amanda Bynes and Hillary Duff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, yeah you kind of had even to like, like with, Jennifer and Angelina. Yeah, so you, Je- team yeah. Jennifer, et cetera, et cetera. They did do that a lot. Mm. And you never know what was going on behind closed doors. These women are probably going, we, I don't care. Yeah, I love but, you. I have a fan theory about Britney. Yes, go on. And uh, Melissa Joan Hart. Banging. I'm, I'm doing a motion for the podcast where I sort of do a paper, scissors, rock with my two hands. I really? think Melissa Joan Hart and Britney were, were banging. Is, do you they mean- were gal pals. I mean, Sabrina. Is that Melissa Joan Hart? Yeah, Melissa Joan Hart. Oh, okay. I thought you meant the older woman who was her chaperone, who was, I saw in the documentary, who was oh. paid to go around with her like a parental figure. And I thought this was going to be a huge guilty feminist scoop. Oh, no, I'm sorry. That would be a massive scoop, but dark and not my hypothesis. No. My hypothesis, so it was do like, you it mean was Sabrina the Teenage Witch? Sabrina the Teenage Witch and Britney the Teenage Pop Witch. <laughs> wow. Uh, you I heard think it. they were banging. There's you- so much crossover. Like Sabrina's like constantly, t- no, wait, Britney turns up in Sabrina yeah. The song Crazy, yeah. you drive me crazy. Is yeah. all this going to be cut out? Not because of copyright, but because I can't sing. No. <laughs> okay. No. So like, you drive me crazy. That was based on a film that Melissa Joan Hart was in and they were always partying together. Ah, interesting. Women can't be friends. Is this, in a very <laughs> real way, is this a bisexual fantasy on your part where you just like, oh, that would be amazing if that were true? <sighs> I mean, like... I think there's evidence to support it. I think once at like 4am I found the evidence, compiled it and then lost it. So I don't have any hard, You're, I don't have the receipts. But you did some CIA style yeah, work. Yeah, I was just like, this, this is why are they always in, why are they in each other's lives? In a way though, whatever theory you can come up with, someone else has already come up with it and put it on the internet. So when you say proof, what you mean is somebody else had an insomniac night and gone, do you know what I, <laughs> do you know what I want to be true? Britney Spears. Going at it. 
with Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Yes, please. Yes, please. Yes, please. And th- thank you. <laughs> Hashtag not when either of them were teenagers, later when it was okay. Yeah, later when it was fine. Okay. Well, I don't know. It depends on the state because you could be 19 and you can be a married teenager. So but yeah. the a, term a, a teenager legal, sounds... Comfortably legal teens. <laughs> I, sorry. Now that's a website you should definitely set up. A feminist website, comfortably legal teens. Twenty five teen from Sophie Duker. Oh God. Comfortably legal. I don't know why I'm saying the things that I've not been out. I think the turn of phrase is barely legal, not comfortably legal. I think okay. comfortably like because comfortably legal, te- comfortably legal is twenty five. Yeah, comfortable teens. If you've got teens, <laughs> yeah, you teens don't have comfort. comfort. There's, There's no, no comfort. comfort cushion there. There's just legal. Yeah, that's just legal. Illegal and legal. Ill- yeah, that's okay. all you've got. There's I'm, no I'm on the side of legal in case there's any doubt. doubt. No. I'm only comfortable when it's legal. <laughs> oh my God. It's ter- Listen, Gavin, what's Gavin saying? Oh, Gavin said, you said you did, that I took you home. Then you did a wink, a winky to the crowd. What's a winky? Like... It was on the Patreon bonus content. Gavin, you really are an avid listener. I'm delighted, thrilled, Gavin. Uh, I said I took you home, did I? Just for the record, if your wife is still with you in the room and she may have left you, uh, that didn't happen. I was so hoping the Toronto show had after drinks. All right, Gavin. Okay. All right. I think I'm in there with Gavin. I think... I mean, Gavin from Canada, it's his, his name itself is poetry. Yeah. I mean, in a very real way, though, Gavin, your wife would have to be open to it as well. Just this is a strange proposition. I, as long as you're both comfortably legal, Sophie Duke is up for it. Yeah. Oh, that's uh, yeah. comfortably oh, legal. I, I like how his name scans also with the Avenue Q song. So like people would have fictional girlfriends that live in Canada. Oh. But you could have a hypothetical Gavin that lives in Canada. Yes. Um, she yeah. lives in Vancouver and sucks like a hoover. Yes. That's right. That's right. Thank you, uh, Gavin. Uh, Roxanne says stronger than yesterday. Uh, oh my God. Solid theory. Roxanne's oh. saying solid theory. Gavin, thank you for saying that. And my wife did not smile as much as I did when I played the clip for her. Yeah, I can see why, Gavin. I can see yeah. why. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Mrs. Gavin. Mrs. Gavin from Mrs. Canada. Mrs. Gavin from Canada. Can you play? I'm going to do a speech just for Mrs. Gavin from Canada. I'm sure that's not her name and it's not how she'd like to be known. I'm a feminist, but I've called this woman Mrs. Gavin from Canada. Mrs. Gavin. I think she's probably glad that you're concealing her identity at this point. <laughs> that's true. Don't tell me her name. So I'm, but I can't call her Gavin's wife. I sound like I'm in The Handmaid's Tale. This is meant to be a yeah. feminist show. Well, uh, she, uh, Give me her Miss- first, the initial of her first name. Mrs. Gavin from Canada in her own right. <laughs> I can't say that. No, okay. I, think, I think you need a, an initial or, yeah, a, okay. or a, so, a tribute. Mrs. Uh, so actual Gavin from Canada. Oh, well, he said the name, so I'll say T. I'll say the initial because I don't think that's consensual. That okay. He said the full name. Okay. Um, so T, her name starts with T. So just to say T, I'm a comedian. I need a lot of jokes because lots of comedians hone the one thing over and over and over again until it's perfect and then they tour it around and then they burn it on the TV and then that's it and they have to start again. But because I have a podcast, I have to have new material wherever I go. So I'm always generating. So if anything happens to me at all, and I do mean at all, someone stands on my foot, the room service order is wrong, I wake up, dot, dot, dot. Anything (laughs) happens, I have to use that on stage if I'm on tour because I'm performing every single night. So when something as amazing as Gavin from Canada coming up with a t-shirt that says, I'm a feminist, but I wish I were John Hamm, of course, that's got to be material. So this is not me in any way bringing a threat to your possibly monogamous marriage. I just want you to know, T, I really respect you and I respect Gavin and I respect Canada. (laughs) 
I respect all the comfortably legal values of Canada. <laughs> and I just want to say, I thought Gavin was fantastic, but I also hope you're very happy for a long time. And if I come back to Canada, which I know I will, please come with Gavin because I'd love to meet you too, but in a non-threatening way. This isn't a creepy invitation to a threesome, just in case you were worried. Thank you, T from Canada. Oh, that's nice. You saluted T from yeah, Canada. Just a, yeah. This is The Guilty Feminist, the podcast in which we explore our noble goals as 21st century feminists and hypocrisies and insecurities which undermine them. I'm Deborah Francis White, with me is Sophie Duker, and we're talking about being a super ally. A super ally. Yeah, super ally. Like Ooh. a superhero, but a super ally. But like an ally, like, in a, like a sidekick. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry, super ally. The terminology, I'll get with the terminology. A super ally. ally. I like, yeah, I suppose Batman, uh, Robin is a super ally to Robin's Batman. a super ally. I can't think of a, a single other sidekick though. But I think part of being a super ally is not taking all the glory necessarily. Even though you are super, you don't necessarily yes. need to shout about how super you are all the time. You don't centre yourself. No. So you'd have to be undercover as a super ally. Yes. It's even harder than being Bruce Wayne, for example. Yes. Well, Robin must have another. What's Robin's real identity? I, Robin is. Um, I, I nobody kn- knows. Well, nobody no cares. Knows. I don't no. know. I feel, and like that's the point. He doesn't centre himself. He doesn't centre himself. Name. You don't. We, I mean, I'm sure Tom would know. Tom Selinsky. What's Robin's real name? I think it's the original Robin was Dick Grayson, but there have been more than one. So, what do you mean? Oh, are these characters or actors? Characters. characters. Okay. So if you'd like to hear Dick Tom's Grayson. TED Talk on <laughs> Robin, apparently, I just guessed he'd be an expert on that. We've never discussed Robin, but I just thought it's the kind of thing yeah, he's going to know like, about. Yeah, this is a safe bet. Yeah. <laughs> Being married, Sophie, there are things you just know your partner knows about and yeah. that you don't ask deliberately because mm. they will tell you. <laughs> they will. Uh, sometimes I ask Tom a technical question. I say, what's gone wrong with the computer? And he'll go... I will give you 10 seconds to retract that question or I will answer it. He gives me retraction time. I like time. how you have the time to be like, I'm absolutely going to shut this down right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Shut it down. I shut go, it. no, no. Sorry, I asked. Sorry, so, I asked. No, I, no, no. Why? Yeah. The most common thing he says to me if I ask him a question is, do you want the long answer or the short answer? Ooh. Never once in our marriage have I that- ever pitched the long answer. I was going to say that sounds like quite a sexy... It's quite a sec. Do you want the, sh- the short? No, I'm, I don't know. I've been inside. Do you want a, a quickie or a, <laughs> a, quickie a long or weekend? A, yeah, a mini a quickie break. Or a, a mini break of an answer. Do you want a mini break with Robin? Uh, do, you, do you? Dick Grayson? I'll have the cliff notes from the TED Talk. Ooh, nice. Efficient. Mm. Efficient, but still, but still a deep dive. <laughs> okay. Deep, but efficient. Deep, yeah. Deep, but efficient. Deep but efficient. I don't know what we're talking about anymore. Super allies. Superheroes. Super allies. Capes. How do you feel on the question of allying? Because I feel sometimes it gets into very tricky territory with people going, oh, you're virtue signaling or you're centering yourself or you're allying wrongly. And other times I feel like it's all we've got in the world is, you know, when when people say, oh, people get offended for people who aren't even in the room. I'm like, that's the definition of empathy. Yeah, the point. That's the point. Why aren't they in the room? Some people don't feel comfortable there, probably. Yeah, yeah, they're probably like, I just don't want to go in. It's a bigoted room. Um, Yeah, I think it's really hard. And I think the thing that I have uh, when I'm trying to be an ally is like, 
I don't know what it's like to be someone who's not me. I don't know if what I'm doing is the right thing. So maybe I'll just not do very much at all because how could I ever figure it out? Um, But then that's just not good enough, really, because someone else will potentially take on a great deal more embarrassment or shame or pain or hurt for your little like, oh, I don't know what's going on. And it's very normal to not know what's going on with someone who has different experiences to you. I think that's right. And all you can do is listen, but not everyone in that group has the same experience and not everyone in that group wants allies to act in the same way. Did you hear about this thing this week with Scott Rudin, who's a big Broadway producer and film producer? Did you ever see Swimming with Sharks, the film and the play about the producer like throwing things at the assistant and abusing the assistant? I have not seen this. The shark is a metaphor. The shark is a metaphor. The shark is Hollywood and the, you know, the Harvey Weinsteins. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Scott Rudin is allegedly, we are a very small podcast. We can't afford a lawsuit. Um, So I'm going to say allegedly somebody who throws things and backs people up against a wall and, you know, really intimidates. So it's finally come to the point where a Broadway actress said, well, I'm not going back to Broadway. She was in a show. She was an amazing performer and Tony winner. And she was like, I'm not going back to the show. Nothing to do with Scott Rudin. She's just like Broadway is a cesspit, like Mm -hmm. this kind of abusive behavior. And then other big names apparently pulled out and Scott Rudin's resigned and said, okay, I'll have to take time off everything and, you know, I won't have anything to do with anything. And then what's kicked off from that is so many people online going, if you're an ensemble member and you go back to a show with an abuser, you're in the wrong. Or if you're an actor, but it might be your first job out of drama school, you're wrong because you're working with somebody on that stage or behind the scenes who's an abuser. And it's all like really spiralled. And I read this amazing thread today from a Broadway actor who said, every time we point to each other as you're not allying well enough, we're decentering the work. Yeah. And she was saying like, some people are doing the work by taking a stand. I think actually, honestly, resigning from the show only works if you're box office. I know I was going to care if an ensemble member resigns, they just get another one. Yeah, there's, yeah. Someone else will jump in, do some jazz. Is that what ensemble do? Yeah. They should just be like, that's an abuser. Jazz hands. Jazz hands in the direction. Or write, Scott Rudin is an abuser, allegedly, on their hand. So when they're doing the jazz hand, the audience is like, did I just, no, I'm not, oh, subliminal. Subliminally, people will get it. So she was saying, look, some people do the work by being you know, famous enough basically to take a stand and pulling their box office out of the play. Some people do it by turning up and influencing or standing up for other people behind the scenes. Some people do it by what they do online and how they try and influence others and get others to do the same. Some people, I just can't do it this week, mm-hmm. but they're saving themselves for a fight down the line when you can't do it. And it was such a beautiful post because I just said, she said, every time we turn on each other, you're not allying well enough. You're not allying well enough. You're doing it wrongly. We dissent to the work. And I was like, yes. That's what I'm going to start saying. Yeah. Don't you send to the work. I think, yeah, I think it's just distraction. I mean, obviously there are like techniques that you can want people to get on board with, but you can't expect everyone to be able to do exactly the same thing because they have their own limitations and invisible boundaries and Mm -hmm. insecurities. And the important thing is stopping alleged abusers yes. <laughs> from and being in Broadway. just literally can't afford to... People have been out of work no. for a year with a pandemic. They can't afford not to be in the ensemble. Ensemble members are on scale. They're on no money, like, you know, for eight shows a week. And, like, I'm sure a lot of them would love to not work for Scott Rudin, but... Yeah, you can't. You can't. Like, when I was um, 
working in a television, there was a woman doing a show that I, it was the first thing that I turned down because I didn't agree with who was working on it. And I was just like, I can't judge like any other like researchers that might want their first step up. Or if you've been out of work for three months, I can't judge anyone else who does it because I'm in a place where I'm like, fine, I don't have to do this. It's a privilege to be able to make that principal decision. Because if I like I'd been starving or I needed to feed my children that don't exist or my mother or my dog that also doesn't exist, but I wish did, I would I would have taken the job. I'd yeah. have taken the job and I would have found another way. You can't blame the people running around the Amazon warehouse for not working, say, stop working for Bezos. Mm. You're, you're, you're facilitating him. Stop it. Like, you, you enable peeing in a bottle. Yeah, we would. We, we don't have healthcare otherwise. Like, you know, if they even get healthcare. Yeah, so do they have healthcare? Probably not. The dental is but, amazing. Um. <laughs> yeah, they don't get loo breaks, but my God, they wow. get They've absolute... got dazzling smiles. <laughs> it's America. That's probably true. That is, yeah. Um, Sophie, do you have some stand-up comedy for us? Yeah! Please welcome to the stage, Sophie Chigga! Okay. I'm going to travel to over here because if I sit down, I worry that my job will lose all meaning. Um, Okay, great. Great. Lovely. Hello! Hi! Hi, everybody. I am openly black stand-up comedian Sophie Duca, and I am so pleased to be here performing to no people. Um, I know that some of you are going to be watching live on the live stream, uh, but the majority of you will be listening later. And so I just want to say to everyone listening in the future that I hope by the time that you listen to this, COVID-19 has been completely and definitively eradicated, along with racism, sexism, ageism, homophobia, queerphobia, transphobia, fatphobia, and Piers Morgan. I appreciate the last one has some overlap. So today I want to talk to you about something that I am just getting out of, which is lockdown. Uh, Lockdown really changed me. Uh, Lockdown changed me because Most recently in lockdown, I've been living with three other women. Three other women. I have been living in lockdown with three other women. That's me and she and she and she. And I thought that it would be great to be trapped inside indefinitely with three other women. Uh, The women I live with are amazing. They're all strong women. They're powerful women. They're sheroes. But it's very hard to be a girl boss on furlough. And... um, yeah, it wasn't like that at all. It was like little women with worse Wi-Fi. Uh, it was hard. When we were all trapped inside together, we realized we had two things that we had not anticipated. Those things were mice and hormones. Um, it's true what they say about women. Actually, we did all eventually sync up. What they say about women, we all sync up. So uh, I think it's my turn next. I'm due on next. So at some time every month, one of us will just spontaneously... And then all the others will join in. Uh, sometimes it passes down the street like a twilight bark. <sighs> we all went quite feral in lockdown. Like we started not caring about things, growing stuff out, leaving stuff off, uh, leaving our moon cups in the microwave. 
um, which is fine. I don't know how many of the cup gang are listening or in, uh, but it is actually fine to put your moon cup in the microwave. That's how you sterilize it. But normally you suspend it in a sort of liquid. So you put it in a liquid and then uh, the heat plus the water boils your sins away. Uh, that's the science of it. I think the problem with that, though, is that normal, real adults would have like a sort of menstrual break basin that they put their moon cups in to do this, whereas we just have mugs, uh, lots of mugs, <laughs> the mugs that we drink out of, which is in itself fine because it's a microwave, it's sterile. I just worry that it's going to change the flavour profile of the drinks. Um, <laughs> you don't want to go for a hot cocoa and get a Bloody Mary. That is not even the most harrowing thing in our kitchen. I (laughs) love to cook. I love cooking. I love a multi-syllable spice. I love some turmeric or paprika or coriander. But there is one spice in our kitchen that has been there since before we moved in that has gone completely untouched. And that is a small blue and orange tub of cock seasoning. That's not French. It's C-O-C-K seasoning. I have never used it and I don't want to use it because I don't know what it does. Uh, Cock seasoning, it baffles me, honestly. The cock seasoning is there and I think, okay, I don't want to try it, but the real reason I don't want to try is is that like I could obviously find out what it does by like slipping some of it into my housemate's food, but that seems homophobic. So I, I think the reason I don't want to taste it is because I don't want it to not taste of dick. I really, really want it to taste of dick. I want someone to have envisioned it for that purpose. I want someone to be like, we're going to target queer women. We want like, lesbians to be using it like sriracha, putting it on everything. I want there to be like cock seasoning snobs who are like, mm, cock is a condiment, not a sauce. Uh, I'm being whimsical, of course. I know that cock seasoning is not a seasoning that tastes of dick. It is obviously just a seasoning that you put on the dick to make it taste better. I don't know why I started with cock, but unrelatedly, I uh, ended my relationship. I split up with my boyfriend of five years during lockdown. And if some of you are listening, thinking, oh, what a lockdown cliche, we actually broke up because of unreconcilable differences that were there before the pandemic. So fuck you. Um, (laughs) I'm quite excited to find out who or what I will date next. I am pansexual, for those of you who don't know me, which doesn't mean that I like to shag kitchen utensils. It just means that the gender and genitals of the people that I fuck isn't as important as them not being a Tory. I don't say that, by the way. I don't say that, by the way, because I think that Tories care, all right, that I'm not having sex with them. Because there's a real trend in lefty circles at the moment to be like, oh, on like the dating apps, like, oh, oh, I I don't fuck a Tory, sorry. I don't sleep with Tories. My boo can't be blue. And Tories don't care because, newsflash, guys, they can just have sex with each other. Boris Johnson isn't going unshagged. There are more than enough girls called Philippa to go around. There's a lot of gammon-seeking gammon out there. A lot of ham on ham. <laughs> I got very angry about this during the, during the lockdown. I got so angry during the lockdown in general, being caged in with all these women, even about things that were meant to be good. I got angry about Eat Out to Help Out, a government initiative that briefly delighted feminists everywhere until we realised it was actually about Wagamamas. 
Uh, I got angry at Dominic Cummings. Oh, God, that name. Remember Dominic Cummings? What a shit wizard. I feel like his whole vibe was like an exam invigilator that has just started having an affair and now thinks that he's Leonardo DiCaprio. Also got angry at influencers, the influencers that during a global panna cotta decided it was time to fly to Dubai, ride camels, drink cocktails and call it essential work travel. There are so many problems with that, but I think the biggest problem is that if you're going to flaunt lockdown rules or bend lockdown rules or twist lockdown rules, why would you do it in Dubai, a city whose migrant worker experience is somewhere between Sports Direct and Mordor? (sighs) But the angriest I got this whole lockdown was before I was with all the girls, before at the start of lockdown, I thought I'd do the good thing and move in for a bit with my mother. Some of you will think that's absolutely fine, and those of you, I think, will have been born by your mothers in the normal way. You know, the normal way, your mum gets pregnant for nine months, she gets bigger and angrier, and then when she's ready, she goes to a quiet corner and lays you like an egg. You come out head first, hands up like you're bombing down a water slide. I was not born this way. I was a different baby. I was an early baby. I was a cesarean baby, which means I was untimely ripped from my mother's womb before I was ready, before I was willing. And ever since then, I think that my mum has had a problem with boundaries. So my mum's flat has a little wall, a single bed, a corridor for stuff and another wall. And my mum treats that single room like her womb and that she thinks she can come in and out at any time. I've told her I'm an adult. I've told her I need space, but I think that's changed something fundamental in her brain chemistry because she started doing a very weird thing when she wants me. Whatever she's doing in the flat, whatever she's doing in the flat, she looks up, gets to her feet, walks over to my door, pushes open the door, walks into the center of the room, spreads her arms wide and shrieks, knock, knock. She makes no sound when she's in the other room. She doesn't call out as she's moving through the flat. She doesn't even strike the wood of the door with her hand. As is customary in most civilized societies, she just bursts through at any time of night or day and shrieks, knock, knock, which makes for very tense wanks. Thank you. I've been Sophie Duca. Thank you so much. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Please welcome to the mic, Deborah Francis-White! 
So I've turned into a control freak. That's what the pandemic's done to me. I don't mind telling you. I do mind telling you, actually, because I feel like I'm losing control by telling you. But it's just what's happened to me. I'm a control freak now. And I always had a problem with control. That was quite clear to me now. I didn't realize I had a problem with control, but my hypnotherapist has pointed out and my talk therapist has pointed Whoa, out. Whoa, two therapists. Okay, they, casual. Let's move on. <laughs> I've never had a therapist in my life. I had two therapists. I had a therapist for six weeks and another therapist for six weeks. Didn't like either experience. Thought, no, no, no to therapy. Said that. At a guilty feminist, got so many people emailing me going, Don't put people off therapy. They're a brilliant therapist. And I said, Very sorry. Of course, you're right. So during lockdown, I thought, This is a good time to do some DIY on myself. Mm-hmm. So I thought I should finally have some therapy. And so I've ended up with two therapists and they both keep saying the same thing to me and they don't know each other unless they do and they're plotting behind my back and that is highly possible. Um, I think you should keep going if that's a suspicion. (laughs) Well, exactly, exactly. This is the thing is I've just started to DIY so much of my life And recently I thought, I mean, this is not the year to be buying new furniture, obviously. I've made no money whatsoever, but I've just been in my flat for so long and I've realised I haven't decorated the downstairs for 10 years. We've been there for 10 years. So I thought I'll just buy some new cushion covers and a mat just to sort of make it look a bit different and colourful and not so ripped up by cats. So I bought loads of cushion covers and a mat and then when it came, they weren't like the colours in the thing at all they were ugly colors and I was like trying to make this place more beautiful now I've got big boxes of things and ugly cushion covers that I have to send back and I just had a total meltdown and when I was trying to get this right and there was a few other things in my career that I was like I put so much work into them and now it's all gone wrong and I can't get this right and I said to my therapist I feel like I'm owed more given the work I've put in and how hard I've tried on various other personal things as well that I won't go into because I tell too much on the podcast and then I don't have any secrets and it's good to have secrets isn't it so I um I said this to her and she went that is the name of our session I'm owed more. She was like, you feel owed. If you put in effort, you feel owed results. I was like, yes, yes. And she was like, relying on outcomes is a very difficult thing to choose. She said, that's the sort of way to unhappiness. Mm -hmm. If you think I'll only do this if I get this outcome. And I know I need to let go of outcomes. I know I do, but I can't. So I can't, yes, but I can. I shouldn't say I can't because if you say you can't, then you can't. Do you have a point I of just like how your therapist titles your sessions. Yes. It's almost like she has her own podcast. It's like, that's it. <laughs> it's good to have secrets. Do you the think she's recording it and putting it out? I mean, <laughs> I, I would listen. That would, that would be, I mean, very unethical, but quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's possible. She's like, oh, this really well-known podcast is coming to me. I'll just, just press the notes on my phone. I might as well pop it out, see if we can build an audience. Does she introduce you at the start of the sessions for no oh, reason? Just be like, here's noted broadcaster, like, podcaster, comedian, and never writes why. Here for our session. I thought she was just doing that to make me feel comfortable because she knows I'm a podcaster. But looking at it now, yeah, she's recording these and putting them out. Yeah, I should just check. They're probably on Spotify or something like that. Um, she's probably got an exclusive deal with Audible. I, I, <laughs> I don't know. But I've just realized, yeah, that I am like literally trying to control everything in my life to the point I've been really, really working on my posture. Like I've bought this posture harness and I've been, because I've been dancing, I've really noticed that sometimes I record myself dancing to see, you know, how well I'm doing it to see, you can, it's much easier to see what you're doing better or could be doing better. 
And I notice like when I walk back to it, when I'm dancing, I'm really holding myself up. But when I walk back, sometimes I'm still pitching forward, which is something that I've done all my life and tried to create with yoga. And so now I'm like walking around a house, like controlling my posture. And it is working, don't get me wrong. But I just suddenly thought the other day, I should do accents. I should learn different accents. Because people in Britain can do accents because they were raised with these accents. I can't do accents. I'm going to learn to do accents. I've had Invisalign things in my teeth, not real Invisalign because that's too expensive. I've done direct smile where basically you smile at them and then they go try these. And um, so I've had these things that I only wear them at night because I can't do it all day and all night. I can't talk properly. It's like I've got cotton wool in my mouth, but I do it at night. And I was looking in the green room and I was going, oh, my teeth are noticeably straighter. They weren't crooked before as anyone else would notice, but I started to notice because I was on Zooms all the time and I started to go, that one sticks out and that one sticks out, but they stick out a lot less now because I've been doing these small changes, like constantly going, what else can I change? What else can I change? What else can I change about myself? And I've realized it's control because I don't have control over anything else in my life except this. So that is why I will soon be walking so upright like a ballet dancer while also doing a Glaswegian accent, but with unbelievably straight teeth. And if you see any of these things and go, oh, Deborah, you've really changed. Yes, I have, because I can't control anything in the outside world or what I do for a living and how I do it. But what I can control is these minuscule things. So now I'm obsessive and I have probably got some kind of disorder. But it is enjoyable because I'm getting stuff done. The flat looks amazing. Wow. I, I, I love all of it. I, I'm amazed that you think that walking upright like a Glaswegian ballet dancer is a minor change in how the world perceives you. Uh, and I can't believe you didn't go further into posture harnesses what websites can oh. you purchase? Posture? So it, well, uh, you just Google it. Google it. Google it. Google it. Google it. That, that Google seems it. like the easiest way. And uh, yeah, it's a sort of strap-on thing that you put on. Yep, I'm familiar. And then it's sort of... <laughs> <laughs> and you, 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 pop, you pop it on and then it just holds you upright. I first found out about them because Steve wears one for when he does jewellery so that he doesn't slouch when he does jewellry. Oh, it sort that, of holds him upright. That is a good idea. And then another friend of mine got one because he's writing on the laptop a lot and he said, oh, I just noticed my posture wasn't good in lockdown because I was doing a lot of slouching. I think it's because we're wearing slouchy clothes. I've actually started wearing sort of more... See, I'm wearing like a blazer. Yeah. I've decided to go in for a more preppy look and get my jackets out of the back of the cupboard just because I've been in pyjamas so long. I feel like I'm a sort of rag doll. And so I only hold myself up when I'm dancing. So now I'm doing like really core, holding my core, you know, um, like sailing into rooms. Like, I like that. It's yeah. very Princess of Genovia. Exactly. Mm. Or fame. Fame. Yeah. yeah. I think the clothes you wear do, like I slouch quite a lot, but I'm wearing a sort of athletic corset, which is the worst bits of both colors. <laughs> I don't think there's <laughs> any sporting merit. And it's also, but yeah. Well, I think you look amazing. And I love what you're wearing. If you're listening at home, Sophie has a pale pink pastel Adidas, what can only be described, yes, as a corset. So think someone from Bridgerton wanted to do a marathon. That's what they would wear. <laughs> so what I'm doing this week, we're starting a new campaign because I think this is something actually worth controlling. All of these things that I'm doing for myself, I think some of them are just neurotic strangenesses that comes from a year of being housebound. And so I'm not judging them. I'm just being curious and going, oh, that's interesting. That's sailing into my eyeline. This is in my peripheral vision. This is how I'm finding these small ways of controlling things. I probably should relinquish control and outcome more. But I thought instead of channeling it into the straightest possible teeth, when my teeth weren't really not straight anyway, and who cares, and all teeth are beautiful teeth, etc. 
I should be channeling it more into my feminism. So we're starting this noisy and annoying campaign because this policing bill that, you know, everyone's saying kill the bill. Oh, yeah. This is this, if you live in the UK, this terrible bill that's coming in. So many bad things in this bill. It's a horrible bill. But the Tories have a majority, so it is going to pass very likely. Mm-hmm. So what we're trying to do now is get amendments to the bill. The thing that I want to take responsibility for is the clause that says we cannot be a noisy and annoying at protest or if the police say mm-hmm. you're too noisy and annoying, you can be arrested for that. Because I mean, it's, it's absolutely wild that that's in there. It's the, the whole point of a, of a protest, protest is to make people sit up and take notice. And it's also incredibly powerful, like the songs and the music at protests. like And the chants. The chants. Yeah. But it's the definition it, of a protest. Yeah. If you're not being noisy and annoying, what? how is it a protest, though? It's just sort of just standing know, like around. A, like, a, like a cameo in a public place. I mean, what is it, though? Like, it's just the tube at Russia. But I think it must... not being noisy and annoying. <laughs> so it's like you could say, oh, that carriage is protesting. But how? We can't... They're not saying anything. So mm. they, they are, though. Like, it's not... I don't get it. So I don't want to make protesting unsafe for people, you know, like nurses. If nurses mm. get arrested and they get convicted, they can't be nurses anymore. Doctors will get struck off. I did not off. know that. Yeah, teachers but I mean, can't yeah, have a criminal record. So... <sighs> It means those people are not going to be able to safely protest so, about their own conditions. You and I, if we want to, you know, if you get an opportunity to make a TV show in America and you've got a criminal record, the answer will be no. So you and I have to rethink if we go down to that protest, how do we make sure we don't get arrested for just turning up because that could happen. And they say, oh, but we won't use it for that. But then don't put that clause in. So we're doing a campaign, uh, like video campaign, about how it's a British value to be noisy and annoying we think of ourselves as very sort of slightly quiet and polite and that's actually not true how we've got every single uh right we've got in this country is through people being noisy and annoying everyone in the uk especially just needs to get behind this campaign because we are seriously 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 in danger of losing our democracy if we can get this clause taken out then we can protest about other things i mean hopefully other people are working on other parts of this bill to get those things amended but i can only I have to focus on one thing and this is what I want to focus on. If we get it trending and we embarrass the government, they will have to change it. It's like Marcus Rashford and the school dinners. They know they're going to look really bad. So we need to get it trending. So if people can get involved with noisy and annoying, please get on board as much as possible because this is something we do seriously need to take control of. Yeah. Please get involved with noisy and annoying, especially if you're British. But if you're not, then please. Is there any point in those of us outside the UK? Yes, um, there is. No, there absolutely is. Because if countries other than the UK, if people from countries other than the UK are going, what is the UK losing their democracy? That really embarrasses the UK government. And then they'll go, oh, just take it out, take it out. It's not important enough to us that we want to look like we're fascist dictators. So yes, other countries getting involved. I mean, we don't expect you to. We know that, you know, there are other countries that need your support probably more than the UK, but we would love it and it does help. So yes, please. Thank you, Orna. Our guest today is a teaching fellow in the African department at SOAS, a visual sociology PhD researcher at Goldsmiths. Already, I feel like the tone is so significantly raised (laughs) that this guest is too fancy for us. She's quite fancy. She's very fancy. 
And she is the author of Don't Touch My Hair, which was an Irish Times bestseller. Her latest book, What White People Can Do Next, is a manifesto for real change born from the urgent need to talk about racial injustice in a different way. Please welcome Emma Dabiri. She's so fancy. You are ready. She's too fancy for us. Far too fancy. I'm not used to wearing jeans. I know. Very comfortable. I know. <laughs> Very little too small. Well, th- whose jeans aren't a little too small at the moment? And also, we're just not used to that pressure. We're used to pajama pants. Yeah, pajama pants Sweat all the way. Pants. I don't. I actually have rebought jeans, and I uh, walked. I bleached my eyebrows during lockdown, uh, and then went to see my mum, and she was like, "You're wearing jeans. It looks wrong. <laughs> what are you doing?" <laughs> uh, yeah, jeans. Jeans, sexy, but. Tyrannous. I was wearing jeans and a blazer, which is something that I never, ever wear. And at the last minute, I chickened out and took off the blazer. But then when I saw you and you were also wearing jeans and blazer, I was like, oh, that would have been weird if I'd been dressed in the same way. I would but, have loved it. Yeah. I would have, you would have made me feel fancy because as you know, Sophie and I think you're fancy. Okay, well. Um, <laughs> I would have felt very left out, but I'd have dealt with it in my own time with my own therapist. You're in an, <laughs> you're in an, an athletic corset. Yeah, I'm in an athletic corset. I'm going to be jumping horses. You're jumping with horses. Jumping. The horses will be jumping. I'll be. <laughs> Did you know the first woman won the Grand National? <laughs> yes. Yeah. See, I, it's relevant. It's, it, that's a tricky one for feminism though, isn't it? Because yay for feminism that a woman won it, but the Grand National is very controversial because of animal rights. Yes. So I didn't know what to do. I was paralyzed. And it was a boy horse, so it wasn't very feminist, that, that horse. What? <laughs> <laughs> oh, can you... But a boy horse. A boy as a stud. So do you feel feminism was undermined because the one that really won the race was a boy? The one that did the running. (laughs) The one that did the running was was the horse. (laughs) Was the boy the boy? A male horse. horse. A male horse stallion won. A feminist. Poor Rachel. Rachel. What was her name? Rachel. Oh, I do know this. Her name was Rachel. Rachel Grand National it is now. Yeah, no, I think it's right. I I can ride a horse, but not as well as Rachel. Can you? Yes. There's a series of books about a little girl called Sophie that likes to ride. She's basically a tiny Tory, but I <laughs> identified with her because her name was also Sophie, and I made my mother take me to horse riding lessons, even though we lived in London, where <sighs> there are not that many horses really? having. Yeah, yeah. And so you can ride a horse. I thought you were going to say, and that book series is about me because uh, I was such a famous rider as a child. So no. I wrote a book series about Yeah, me. I didn't learn to do horse racing because I don't think you teach children that. And I didn't learn to do the sort of... You weren't well, like a jockey. Yeah, I wasn't a jockey. And like, there's also dressage where the horses do yes. like TikTok dances. And I didn't do that either. <laughs> I just sort of learned to like trot and canter and uh, jump and had to do a lot of... Muff- I think they'd use the kids as like free labour and then it got too expensive. So we didn't do it again. I did not know this. This is a brilliant yeah, other side. I should be in Bridgerton. You should be should in Bridgerton. Be. Yeah. So Shonda Rhimes, if you're listening, Sophie Duca <laughs> should be in Bridgerton and can ride a horse. Side saddle? Can you do side saddle? Yes. Very. It feels very dangerous though because you've not got purchase on the... Especially in a long dress, but that corset would do yeah. wonders. I liked the use of purchase there. Thank you. Yeah, I was feeling Thank it. You. I was feeling it. When I was growing up in Dublin, there were like so many horses, so many urban horses. Ooh. But um, 
like urban foxes? Do they come out at night and go through your bits? <laughs> they, they, didn't, they didn't wait for a night. They were just there like all the time. And they seemed really normal to me. And I remember like when I first came over here to go to university, going back to Dublin one weekend with a, an English friend, quite a, a posh English friend. And she was just like, why are there like horse and car? Why are there horse and cars like everywhere? And I was just like, what do you mean? That's just like, I'd never really like questioned it before. It just felt like very, very ordinary. But yeah, it was um, surprising to uh, foreigners, I guess. But yeah, they're, they're gone now, sadly, the Dublin horses. I remember one of them coming into my college and dying, actually, in oh, the grounds one day, which is quite distressing. Oh my God. In Ballyfermot. Oh, this is a... Are they, are they gone because they weren't being properly kept? or just Yeah, because of I this? think so. Okay. I think so. And the city just like tightened up on the horse issue. And yeah, I don't know. I don't know the reason, but they're oh. no longer with us. Oh, but it was full goodness. of horses. Wow. Well, can we in some way segue that? I'm normally very good at segues, <laughs> but let me see if I can do a segue <laughs> from the urban horses of Dublin, as were, and what white people can do next. Um <laughs> Lots of people who own horses are white people, like the Queen. <laughs> Which makes me think of your book, What White People Can Do Next, uh, the need to talk about racial injustice in a different way. Could you please tell us about how this book is a manifesto and what drove you to write it? So I wrote it in response to what happened last year with the killing of George Floyd and the subsequent global protests and kind of response to that. Online, there was just like a kind of, you know, oversaturation of allyship guides and suddenly all of these anti-racism was a word, you know, that we'd all heard before. Like, certainly I was familiar with it, but it was just everywhere. You know, everybody was using this word. Everybody, well, not everybody, a lot of people were like anti-racist educators. And there was just this kind of deluge of information about how to be anti-racist, how to be an ally. And um, I, as somebody who, like my PhD looks at the construction of racial categories, like that's what I've been researching for a long time, how and why race, you know, is invented and what purposes it serves. And I was just concerned by a lot of the mainstream kind of liberal anti-racist narrative. It was quite ahistorical, it was lacking in context. And it had certain demands that I feel are not only not achievable, but are also counterproductive. I had had lots of white people ask me about allyship. And I'd always kind of declined going into it too far beyond kind of cursory responses because um, I teach African studies and I was always far more interested in, you know, kind of the metaphysics of blackness or like Afrofuturism or just these like incredible knowledge systems that like exist in pre-colonial Africa and I'm like this is what I want to like talk about I don't necessarily want to talk I don't want to talk about how white people can be less racist and give them instructions as to how to be allies especially when I find the framework of allyship quite problematic so if if I do of anti-racist allyship so I was like even if I do answer this for you you're probably not going to you're certainly not going to be expecting what I'm going to say. So I avoided kind of getting too deep into the allyship discourse. Then when everything like blew up in 2020, I was like, no, I have to actually make an intervention. So that was the background to the book. 
Wow. <laughs> what, I, what I thought, like when I, when I heard that you were writing this book, I was just like, I'm really glad that I don't have to tell the white people in my life what to do next. Um, because I think it is like a particular strain and it's not something that everyone is necessarily qualified to do consistently. And if you put yourself, well, if you're a person of color, you don't necessarily need to put yourself forward, but kind of putting yourself forward or being visible and even being like a super visible ally means that people come to you consistently to do the work for them. Mm -hmm. And I think that to be an ally involves quite a lot of doing the work yourself in as much as you are able to do it but people kind of want there to be a sort of one-stop shop for all their allyship needs yeah can you give us some top lines from the book I mean sorry to be a white person here saying what should I do next but it's the name of your book so I'm gonna say what can I do next Emma yeah (laughs) okay first of all before we get to that and I will come to that momentarily I just want to pick up on the title because obviously the title is what white people can do next. It really could have been called what everybody can do next, but that doesn't have the same impact. Mm -hmm. And I also wanted to set up the notion of white people in the way white people are discussed within the kind of anti-racist narrative. I wanted to go back to the invention of race in 1661 We have heard, and it's kind of been mainstreamed, this idea that race is a social construct. But while people kind of repeat that phrase, it's like, I don't think people have really like internalized like the truth of that, that it is actually a social construct. So I think if we go back to the year and the place where it's invented, you know, it's 1661, colonial Barbados by the English in Barbados. The invention of race is an English innovation and it's invented through this um, set of slave codes where the idea of white people is introduced and the idea of black people is introduced. And it catches on like wildfire and it spreads to Jamaica, to colonial Virginia, and eventually the world. And it's created with a very specific purpose in mind. Two reasons, and I'll I'll come to what can be done next, but I just think it's really important that we start with this. So you've got the English in Barbados, And then you have indentured Irish laborers and enslaved Africans working on English plantations and some Scottish plantations as well. The indentured Irish and the enslaved Africans see a common enemy in their landlords and stage a series of uprisings where they attack the landlords. This is really threatening to the power system because there's more of them. The notion of whiteness, a white race, And a black race does two things. First of all, whiteness from its first introduction, central to its construction, is an idea of white superiority and central to the construction of this new black race or Negro race, quote unquote, to use the terminology of the time, is an idea of inferiority. So what it does is justify the enslavement of this new group of people who will be known as black people or Negro people. It's a process of dehumanization that justifies their enslavement, which is necessary because the economies, these colonial economies, are becoming increasingly dependent on their exploitation. But the second thing it does is shut down those emerging solidarities and affinities that are existing between indentured Irish and enslaved African. Once the notion of whiteness is, you know, kind of embedded, people of a similar class can't see a shared interest. So those indentured European laborers will see that, begin to see their fate and their fortune 
more in alignment with other white people, even if those are white people who exploit their labor. And the same thing happens in Virginia. Bacon's Rebellion in, again, the 1600s, indentured English and enslaved Africans, the Union of Commoners come together, attack the landlords, and then they codify into law this idea of whiteness and it disseminates. So that's the background. Wow. So you divide and conquer. You say, ah, oh, but you're superior. And that's a message that people want to hear if they themselves are oppressed and feel like they are at the bottom of the socioeconomic yes. uh, power structure. It's like, well, we'll put you in charge of these people or we'll make you feel superior to these people. Absolutely. And then also they are given more rights in law. So indentured laborers, their human rights are enshrined in contract law, whereas this new group of black people are seen as less, not fully human. They have no human rights. You know, a white indentured laborer can do anything they want to a black person and there can be no legal redress for that. There are no legal rights. So there are actually, you know, kind of material and legal advantages that start to be given to poor whites who are still being oppressed, you know, but they have this hierarchy mm-hmm. above those who are below them. So first of all, the first thing the book does is centralize that history, you know. So it, it is a manifesto as well. It's a slim tome. So it starts with, okay, and the actually the subtitle as well is from allyship to coalition. So I reject the framework of allyship and suggest instead the creation of these coalitions. Allyship for me, rather than solidarity, it encourages charity. Mm. So rather than a kind of a white ally, seeing, kind of seeing, oh, poor, misfortunate black people who I might like to help out of some kind of act of maybe charity or benevolence. It's about identifying shared issues that we are all experiencing to varying degrees and in different ways, but different experiences of kind of exploitation or oppression and how many of us experience those in different ways and how they often all come from the same source. So if we can identify Because as I say in the book, the same forces that have a disregard for black life are the forces that have a disregard for women, are the forces that have a disregard for indigenous people, that have a disregard for the poor, that have a disregard for the earth itself. So we all have our own struggles, but the kind of source of what we're experiencing comes from the same place. Mm -hmm. If we can build coalitions we can start to create mass movements that tackle that source rather than having these atomized causes, you know, and kind of falling back along fault lines that were invented in order to divide us, in order to better exploit us. So the book goes through maybe eight different actual kind of concrete steps that can occur. And that was really important to me to do because I felt that with everything that was happening in 2020, you know, a lot of the stuff online was just like really contradictory. On one hand, silence was violence. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, oh no, you don't get to speak on that because you're not experiencing it. So I think there were people that actually, you know, did want to be involved in things. Something I say in the book is this idea of Google is your friend. Don't expect to be taught or shown. I reject that. I Googled allyship just to see what came up. And some old cods wallop came up. I don't want people like Googling that, finding this unsourced. It was drivel, essentially, what came up, you know, and I I talk about it in the book. I actually think it's not the responsibility of every person of color or every black person to teach and show every white person, you know, that, that kind of 
asks questions and the questions can be sometimes annoying and sometimes exhausting. But if you're actually putting yourself out there as an activist, as an anti-racist educator, as a spokesperson for these things, then you can actually point people in the right direction. Mm-hmm. You can, you know, send kind of, some links. Yeah, or, rather than just or saying, say, I'm not up for it today, but why not follow this person or, you know, yeah, very good or something. Exactly. And um, one of my favorite, like, academics is a guy called George Lipsitz, a professor of African-American studies. I always assumed he was a black man. Only recently found out that he was white. His work and his writing is incredible. I listened to an interview with him and he was being interviewed by two black scholars and they were asking him, how does he know all that he knows kind of thing. And he talks about being a young man, I think maybe being a teenager, and working with grassroots black activists in the States and being really involved in their movements and so learning from them, you know? And so the result of that is the creation of like this great thinker, this great organizer, you know? And if you just kind of tell people, well, you know, Google it, then you kind of miss out on those developments, on those potential developments. Like, I totally get Google is your friend if it's just like some dickhead online Mm. who's trying to like derail a conversation Mm. with kind of all lives matter type thing, because there's so much of that as well. I get it in that context. But as a main tenant of allyship, it's dire. Yeah, I hear Mm. you. I hear you. Um, Somebody's just said that Francesca said, I'm white. And when I tell other white people they have white privilege, they get offended. What's the best way to deal with that? As someone who is not white, surprise, um, I feel like it's interesting hearing about the conversations that happen between white people about race. I kind of sometimes find it quite hard to be sensitive to somebody who's like, it's difficult, I have a racist grandma, but like so many people do and so many people have racist loved ones, like actively racist loved ones and toxic loved ones. And if those conversations are happening in rooms where there are no black people, that is something that is quite hard and stressful if, you know, the people around you aren't at the same place as you. I think that obviously there is a explanation to what white privilege is that you can have if people are willing to listen to what white privilege means. But I think that, as I sometimes like getting on stage and telling white people that they have white privilege, but it's not the most important thing that black people need or people of colour need necessarily is for white people to feel guilty. Mm. Uh, And if like, you can lead with what the privilege points to, what they can do for others, that might be... Mm -hmm a better tactic than being like we're all so guilty we have all this yeah. privilege yeah um people reject it because they feel like it's an advantage but i would say to I, I tend to ask a lot of questions and i tend to acknowledge where i have privilege i try and find a privilege that i have that they don't have because the more i concede where i have my privilege and this is me being not an ally someone who's trying to form a coalition love it um <laughs> I try and build a bridge to that person rather than def- get, if I get the hackles up, I need to leave that person at least no more racist, actively <laughs> racist than when I found them. And I think a lot of allies spend their time online going hard after white people who would just sort of, they were passively racist, they weren't actively racist, they were passively transphobic, but they weren't actively transphobic. And you're pushing them into another team mm. with anger and fury. And if you're an ally, surely your job is to build a bridge and get, them to come over to your team but that takes patience I don't expect trans people to do it but I as a cis person I think that's my job yeah and I actually one of the things that I talk about in the book is in the current anti-racist conversation this almost fetishization of privilege 
I don't actually think it's helpful. These interpersonal privileges is not where power really lies, you know? Like, so one of the things, one of my, I think it's eight, I should probably know off the top of my head, I think it's eight, kind of steps. One of them is redistribute resources. You know, society is grossly unequal and like, yeah, inequality is off the rails and that type of inequality and class divisions do fall down largely along racialized lines, you know, society is quite stratified along racialized lines. So there does need to be a redistribution of resources. You know, inherited wealth is something that is kind of the crux of social mobility in this country. And that also falls down along racialized lines. You know, so there does need to be a redistribution of resources, whether through that's through forms of, you know, taxation or uh, universal basic income, or there's a number of ways that there could be, you know, a more equal society created. But in terms of like arguing online about interpersonal privilege, I feel like it's counterproductive. And I also feel like there's no clear means of transferal on that level. So when people are demanding someone transfers their privilege, like how the fuck do they do that? You know, if the privilege is the privilege of moving through the world as an unracialized person as a white person you know who doesn't experience the penalties and costs associated with moving through the world as a racialized person which is what happens to all non-white people that privilege can't be transferred because it's an embodied it's about being phenotypically white you know that can't be transferred most of the transfers though that I'm seeing kind of demanded are more to do with access to spaces or resources and I agree that should happen but that interpersonal exchange is not going to bring it about it has to be something more more structural you know um so this fetishization of privilege I don't think is helpful this is so fascinating I really want you to come back and do a part two because I feel like we've only just started to scratch the surface but also I do want people to buy your book so I'm really torn because I feel like you've given us enough that everyone's going to devour the book is there any one thing that you would like as you say all of us to do next but especially white people to do next that you could give us a top line of what we should do okay so I'll just try and hit the eight things first is stop the denial interrogate whiteness whiteness as a system and the history of whiteness and what that was created to do interrogate capitalism because another thing is these conversations anti-racist conversations seem to be devoid of class analysis and capitalism so stop the denial interrogate whiteness interrogate capitalism denounce the white savior read 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 and dance Dance. Yeah. That's what I've been learning in lockdown. There's a lot yeah. of dancing. Oh my God, I did not accidentally did the next, what white people should do next, accidentally did it. Amazing. Perfect. And I'll skip a couple because I can't remember off the top of my head. And then the final one is recognize that this shit is killing you too. Mm. God, I can't wait to read this book. <laughs> yeah, it sounds fantastic. Yeah. Emma Dabiri, this has been absolutely fantastic. Where can we get your book? Just the, actually, you know, I think it's sold out everywhere, which is like really amazing. Wow. Can you get it on a Kindle? Yeah. Can't be sold out on a Kindle or there's, audiobook. There, yeah, you can get audiobooks and there's new, it's just been reprinted again. So it should be available everywhere so again shortly, but just the usual places where one. Okay. 
right. So books. everyone get a copy of Emma DeMiri's book. Sophie Duke, have you got anything to plug? I have uh, my night Wacky Racists, which will be coming back in <laughs> yes. 2021. Um, the dates are the 11th of August and Halloween, actual Yay. Christian Halloween, the 31st of October. And the lineups are to be confirmed, but it would be lovely to see you there if you can get Great. to London. And just to be clear, it's not for racists. Um, <laughs> With What Eyes are an independent London-based duo formed by two childhood friends. That's adorable. (laughs) Um, We love that. We love a childhood friendship story. They will be performing Heavy Humans, a track from their upcoming EP, We Played Snake Till Snake Played God. That's a great name. Intriguing. Great name. Which comments on the vacuity of a virtual world. It will be released on the 14th of May. Please welcome to the stage With What Eyes. Yes. Yes. Hello. 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 Hello, Phoebe. Hello, Callista. How are you? Hello. Uh, hello. <laughs> Phoebe, can you tell us, do you have an I'm a feminist butt? Um, I feel like today's actually been packed with I'm a feminist butt moments. Um, probably we're feminists, but we spent much more time picking our outfits for tonight than we did actually practicing for our performance <laughs> much, much, much <laughs> who didn't who didn't well listen it's paid off and if the song is half as good as the outfits then we're happy well i mean it's ridiculous because this is most people are going to be listening to this as a podcast it's <laughs> true but no <laughs> we're listen everyone who tuned in for the live stream thanks you look they're woohooing gavin from canada's woohooing you i noticed t from canada's not um ooh, ooh, ooh. okay all right uh so thank you so much and uh take it away Yet still no sense of self 
Beautiful. That was amazing. Can you just tell us again where and when we can get your EP, please? On the 14th of May. On Spotify, everywhere. Apple Absolutely music, everywhere. Yeah. Apple Music, whatever your... iTunes. Case yeah. of choice. Okay. iTunes. Great. And will there be an actual one we can hold in our hands at any point? Uh, not no, yet. your generation not said. But, but, you now there will be. Now, now, now the idea is on our heads, there will be an app. Okay, all right. Well, um, I'm sure everyone will be downloading that. Is there anything of yours we can download at the moment if people are listening at home and want to find you? Yeah, so we're on um, all the kind of streaming services as With What Eyes, and that single was released a month ago or so and will be on the EP, but it's on there along with an EP that we did before as well. Great. So we can download that song now, and that song is called Heavy Humans. I'm sure lots of people are downloading it now. If you're on the live stream, you can get it right away. It felt very connected to feminism. I loved it. I'm speechless. You've got a new fan. That was so, that yeah. was so cool. <laughs> Emma's fancy. We've covered that. Yeah, um, it's not fancy taste. Fancy I'm not fancy, fancy, but I yeah. ride a horse and I thought it was outstanding. So. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much uh, Phoebe and Callista you were absolutely wonderful thank you so much big round of applause with my eyes thank you so much to everyone who's tuned in from all over the world I hope you enjoyed it and we'll see you soon and the next show we have here in May uh, we will be allowed to have people in the venue is that right when will that be? 17th of May, buy tickets for that if you are in the vicinity. But hopefully we'll still have this live stream available so that if you are not from London, you'll be able to join us. It'll just sound like there's more people in the room because there will be. Please join us for the live stream for Noisy and Annoying, which is so important on, when is it, Gina? April 29th. Uh, Please join us then. And uh, thank you again. Um, Start writing a bespoke song for Noisy and Annoying, please. Um, Thank you so much, everybody. It's been wonderful. I've been Deborah Francis-White. This has been The Guilty Feminist. Good night. You have been listening to The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis-White, guest co-host Sophie Duca, and our very special guests, Emma Dabiri and With What Eyes. The Guilty Feminist theme tune was composed by Mark Hodge and produced by Nick Sheldon. The producer was Tom Salinsky from Spontaneity Shop. Thanks to Zoe Tom and everyone at King's Place, as well as all of you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes, visit guiltyfeminist.com. The outro is at the top and the intro must be at the end. Time is a construct. I mean, that's a very unusual piece of admin gone awry by Tom Salinsky. He's the most organised person in the world. But he's put the last page first. And I just want to say, in a marriage, these small point scores are important.
because <laughs> I'm I'm extremely disorganized, and mm-hmm. so you know he'll point out my disorganization. So I've got one thing to say now. Yeah. So I'm going to have to milk this. Well, do you know what Cindy V says? The most important thing in marriage is winning. Yes, 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 yes. And you've, I mean, is this like a sort of? Have you lost? No, no, I've no, won. This, oh, because, you've won. You've won. Oh, sorry, you've won. How is this not clear? You're clearly not married. I'm not married, but um, one he, day I hope to be as petty as you. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the dream. This, the papers rearranged. Uh, I can't wait to come to your hen night oh. and teach you everything I know. Um, like some kind of married Yoda. Oh. Yeah. No, no. Tom and I get on very well, actually. If, well, I, I won't. I won't make a big deal of this. I was just I'll make a small deal of it. A medium you, deal. An extra medium deal. Extra, extra comfortably medium deal. Comfortably <laughs> medium deal. Okay. All right. Um, all right. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.